Well, at the time that we set this text out last Lord's Day, we did so under three heads, the means of attaining to the unity of the faith in verses 7 to 12, the measure of attaining to the unity of the faith in verse 13, and the marks of attaining to the unity of the faith in verses 14 through 16. Christ's design is for his church to attain to what Paul refers to here as the unity of the faith. As he has worked for her, that is the Lord Jesus, has worked for his church, a strong foundation of the unity of the Spirit that we touched on for several weeks there in those opening verses of chapter 4. He did this in order that she might walk in a manner worthy of her high and heavenly calling. And to this end of assisting her in the pursuit of attaining to this unity of the faith, the Lord Jesus, by his humiliation, that is, his descent, and his exaltation, his ascent, has now bestowed upon the church gifts by which she might be perfected. These gifts he has blessed the church with are men performing a particular task of the work of the ministry, seeking to build up the church as the body of Christ. This perfecting, working, and building is the great design of the exercise of the gifts with which Christ has graced the church, as we saw in verse 7. John Eady, a Scottish Presbyterian, wrote these words regarding that that gift of the ministry of, of the word to the church. And he made this statement. He said, the spiritual advancement of the church is the ultimate design of the Christian pastorate. It labors to increase the members of the church and to prompt and confirm their spiritual progress. The ministry preaches and rules to secure this, which is at the same time the purpose of him who appointed and who blesses it. So that the more the knowledge of the saints grows and their piety ripens, the more vigorous their faith, the more ardent their love, and the more serene and heavenly their temperament, the more of such perfecting they gather to them and enjoy under the ordinances of grace, then the more do they contribute in their personal holiness and influence to the extension and revival of the church of Christ. This work, this work of preaching, is the primary means that Christ has appointed for his church's perfecting. This view of the priority of preaching is supported and promoted by both our confession of faith and also the Baptist Catechism. Here, from our confession of faith in chapter 14, paragraph 1, it states this, the grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, and it is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word." by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. We often speak of preaching as the primary means of grace. It is one of several means of grace that Christ has appointed for his people. 
In the Baptist Catechism, in question 94, we read the question, how is the word made effectual to salvation? The answer, the Spirit of God maketh the reading, hear this, but especially the preaching of the word an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. We need the word of God as that effectual means to convince and convert us when we're outside of Christ, but we continue to need the preaching of the word of God in Christ to build us up in holiness and comfort through faith. Speaking of the great work of preaching, being given and used by Christ for the church's perfecting, Calvin makes this statement. He says that no language more highly commendatory of the ministry of the word could have been employed than to ascribe to it this effect. What is more excellent than to produce the true and complete perfection of the church? That's a strong word to say that, that the ministry of the word is used to perfect us. Calvin says, and yet this work so admirable and divine is here declared by the apostle to be accomplished by the external ministry of the word. We're not perfected principally by our experiences. We're not perfected by our feelings. We're not perfected principally by people that we know, even Christian people that we know that admonish us and help us to grow. He is he has reserved this perfecting ministry in the church to the external ministry, Calvin says here, of the word. And yet, it is so often, it is so often that the preaching of the word is despised by men. And worse, these men are often found even in the church of Christ. Consider what Paul says to Timothy. The time will come, he says, when they will not endure sound doctrine. We, we just read it. We have not been coordinating these readings, but every week something's there. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And I, I love that translation where it says they will heap to themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn their ears away from the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. Paul is talking to Timothy about the church, about the organized church, the external, visible saints, we might say. Sadly, the one who is appointed by Christ to speak that which is true is often regarded as the enemy of God's people rather than as their friend. You might recall Paul writing to the Galatians. He had been engaged in truth-telling as he writes to them. But he asked them this kind of, you know, engaging question in Galatians 4, 16. He says, so have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Many of the Lord's appointed servants are treated as Ahab treated God's prophet Micaiah in 1 Kings 22. When Jehoshaphat wanted to know if there was a, a prophet of the Lord among God's people, Ahab said, well, <clears throat> there is, but I hate him. 
because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Yeah, we have a preacher, but we don't want to call him. He never has anything good to say about my plans. As Calvin notes again, he says that those who neglect this instrument, that they should hope to become perfect in Christ, is utter madness. Yet such are the fanatics, on the one hand, Calvin writes, who pretend to be favored with secret revelations of the Spirit. I don't need preaching. I have, I, I, the Spirit in me have this thing. Jesus talks to me. You know, he walks with me and talks with me along the narrow way. Well, sorry, not to ruin him. But the proud men, he says, on the other hand, who imagine that to them the private reading of the Scripture is enough and that they have no need of the ordinary ministry of the church. I've had such a good time this week reading my Bible and my personal devotions. I don't want to ruin it by going to church and have to hear someone Preach to me the Bible. Calvin says, if the edification of the church proceeds from Christ alone, he has surely a right to prescribe in what manner it shall be edified. But Paul expressly states that according to the command of Christ, no real union or perfection is attained but by outward preaching. We must allow ourselves, Calvin adds, to be ruled and taught by men. This is the universal rule, which extends equally to the highest and to the lowest. The church is the common mother of all the godly, which bears, nourishes, and brings up children to God, kings and peasants alike, and this is done by the ministry. This is why Calvin would say in another place that if you basically, this is a very broad paraphrase. If you have to choose between your personal daily devotional time and going to church, what do you do? You go to church. By the grace of God, we're so thankful. We, we live in a world where we have multiple copies of the Bible. They're all over our houses. They're, they're all over our phones. We have like, you know, every possible translation in the world, most of which we can't even read. Yet somehow we still find a way to neglect the Bible, don't we? Calvin says that those who neglect or despise this order choose to be wiser than Christ. Woe to the pride of such men. It is no doubt a thing in itself possible that divine influence alone should make us perfect without human assistance, but the present inquiry is not what the power of God can accomplish. God could do it that way. God could, by his mighty power, just declare you holy and just make you so, not simply by imputation, which he does, by the righteousness of Christ, he could actually make you holy by his mighty power. But that's not the way he chooses to do it. Calvin says here, in employing human instruments for accomplishing their salvation, God has conferred on men no ordinary favor, nor can any exercise be found better adapted to promote unity than to gather around the common doctrine standard of our general. What a wonderful thing to think that 
that we come together. It's not just you having your little private time at home on your own, having your time with Jesus, and you know Bob has that, and Sally has that, and Bill has that, and Fran has that. And then you come together on Sunday to like look at each other and go, well, what did you learn this week? What did you learn this week? What did you learn? No, we all do what? We all come together, and we sit under the very voice of Christ. Thus, as we concluded last Lord's Day among the people of God, preaching should be prized. Christ has appointed one primary means by which his people are to attain to the unity of the faith, and that is the preaching of the word. And this leads us to consider a second point from the text that we have today, if you would direct your attention to verse 13. The measure of attaining to the unity of the faith. Verse 13 says that until we all attain to the unity of the faith, which is the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This leads us to ask a very important question. How long, how long is the exercise of this ministry of the word to be needed in the church of Jesus Christ? How long do we have to put up with preaching? Hmm. Well, Paul's answer in verse 13 is that we, as the church, will attain to the unity of the faith when we possess a full knowledge of the Son of God, when we arrive at a mature manhood, and when we reach the measure of Christ's full stature. Let's think about this text just a bit. And we'll come back at the end to answer that question of how long is the exercise of the ministry of the word to be needed in the church. Well, let's consider first what Paul intends by saying that we are to attain to these things. I don't know what your translation has. The New American Standard has that we would attain to the unity of the faith. And it's an interesting word, and it's used in different ways in the Bible. Principally, it's used to kind of communicate the arrival at a destination, a geographical destination. So don't don't turn there. Just kind of think with me about these things for a moment. In Acts 16, Paul says, we came to Derbe. In Acts 18, it says, we came to, or he came to Ephesus. In Acts 25, he came to Caesarea. In other words, this is like a, a geographical terminus point. We, 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 we got where we were going. We got in the plane this past week, and we left DFW, and we arrived at Raleigh. And we got in a car in Raleigh, and we drove to Anger. And then we drove from Anger to this little country spot where we got to a church. And then finally, we got back on a plane, and then another plane. And then we finally got back to DFW. We, we arrived. We attained to the destination. But at times, this word is used more conceptually, a little more abstractly. For example, in 1 Corinthians 14, 36, Paul speaks about the word of God coming to the Corinthians. He's kind of reproving them there. Did it only come to you? It, it, it attained that destination. Or in Philippians chapter 3, Paul speaks of attaining to the resurrection of the dead. And here, Paul intends that the Ephesian believers would attain or reach or arrive at 
a mature manhood. Well, there are several phrases that are used here in, um, in verse 13 to kind of describe this attaining to the unity of the faith. And I would break them down this way. He speaks about a knowing of Christ, a knowing of Christ. Now, this is no mere information dump about Jesus. I'm smarter now than I used to be. You ever, you ever thought that you, you know more about the Bible now than you used to? But sometimes you don't really feel like you know Jesus more than you used to. You, you seem to be more knowledgeable. Your head's bigger than it used to be, but maybe your heart seems small. This is not just information about Jesus. It, the Lord desires us to know him, or as Paul prayed earlier in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, he prayed that we would know with a knowing that surpasses knowledge. He says this back in 3.19, I want you to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not a knowing without knowledge, but one that moves beyond mere knowing to experience and a deepened understanding of the thing or the one known. Consider Paul himself as an illustration of this. If you look in your Bibles in Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3 should be just a few pages over from where we are. I'm going to begin reading in verse 7 and just listen to Paul as he describes his own progress in this knowing beyond knowing, this knowing beyond just mere information. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And notice, he's a believer. He is already justified by grace through faith because of Christ. He already, in some sense, possesses Christ. Christ possesses him. He already has a righteousness that's not his own. He has been credited or had the righteousness of Christ imputed to him. But he continues to do what he's pleading and he's praying that I might know these things, that I might lay hold of these things. They're still beyond him. Notice what he says in verse 10, that I may know him. Paul, don't you know him? Yes, but I don't know him. Do you, do you, do you feel that tension in your own life, in your own struggle? He's not striving to speak in contradiction. He's just trying to say, yes, I know him, but, but, it, but it's more. Think of your relationship with your spouse. Think of your relationship with your children. You, you know them, but you don't know them. We're having that kind of thing going on in this room, aren't we? <laughs> you know, we know one another, but we don't know one another. And we want to know one another. I'm not just trying to repeat myself. I'm hoping you get the point. He says, I want to know him. I want to know Jesus. I want to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's not saying, I hope I can save myself by my works. 
No, but he realizes the Christian life is a progressive knowing of Christ. It's a progressive knowing of this glorious triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a growing in knowing. It's not without knowing, but it's beyond just mere information. Further, through the preaching of the word, believers grow to manhood. There is no true growth apart from the word of God. Peter places a high premium on the preached word. Just listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, where he says that we in Christ, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. We all begin as infants. But no one is born again directly into manhood. We're born as children. We're born as babies. We're born little. But we're called to grow. And we need to grow. Consider the reproofs given to some who, for various reasons, that fail to grow. In Hebrews chapter 5, and verses 11 to 14, a reproof is given, and it's given to those who should have grown to the point of being teachers themselves. Now, all do not need to grow to the point of being teachers. Not, what does James say? Not all are teachers. Not all should strive to be teachers. There are different gifts within the body. But these particular brethren in Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, are approved because they did not grow, and they should have been teachers by this point, but they had grown dull of hearing. And in the context you're hearing, is the, they're, 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 they're dull of hearing the preached word. They're not hearing it like they, like they should. They're, we might say they're poor listeners. It says in Hebrews 5, verse 11, concerning him we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And it goes on through verse 14. Furthermore, the Corinthian church the Corinthian church is reproved for their carnal infancy in regard to the word in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants of Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are not yet able. In fact, as we move through the book of 1 Corinthians and into 2 Corinthians, it's like because of their, their difficulty in receiving the preached word that the Apostle Paul brought to them, it's like a compounding of problems over and over again. It just like, it just like tumbles into bigger and bigger problems within the congregation. And finally, this unity of the faith to which they were to attain would be a reaching of the measure of Christ's full stature. Look back there in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and or even the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's a mouthful, isn't it? To the the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Well, we've seen this idea already, haven't we, in 
the book of Ephesians, about this idea of the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the goal of the call of God on the church, that she might grow up into her head, that she might grow into this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is indeed the very fullness of God himself. We saw back in chapter 3 and verse 19 that Paul wanted them to be, as a church, filled up to all the fullness of God. We've already encountered back in chapter 1, in verses 22 and 23, that the Father put all things in subjection under the Son's feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul has this picture of the church finally being the body of Christ in fullness as his fullness. In chapter 1, verse 10, we saw that this is why Christ came and why we have been chosen and redeemed and sealed. In chapter 3, verse 10, we saw that this is how the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to all the heavenly places. The church will grow up into her head as a mature man, full of the knowledge of Christ, attaining to the unity of the faith, carrying in her a measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Jesus. Well, this brings us back to the question. The question we asked earlier, how long is the exercise of this ministry of the word to be needed in the church of Jesus Christ? One might say, well, we need it as long as it takes. How long does it take? How long is it going to take for the likes of you and me to grow to the point that we know Christ with a knowledge that goes beyond just mere knowledge? How long is it going to take you and I to attain to this unity of the faith, this mature man? How long is it going to take you and I to rise to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? Well, aside from the obvious that it's going to take a long time, let's say it's going to take until Christ comes again. That little word, until, it's a striking little word to me. It's just kind of gripped my attention for the last month or so. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Until we all attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. Until we all attain to a mature man. Until we all attain to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. How full is the fullness of Christ? the glorious God-man, the very divine, beautiful, glorious Son of God. How full is he? Calvin writes, he said, Paul had already said that by the ministry of men, the church is regulated and governed so as to attain the highest perfection. But this commendation of the ministry of the word is now carried farther. The necessity for which he had pleaded is not confined to a single day, but continues to the very end. I've had enough of church. I've had enough of preaching. I've arrived. I'm there. 
I have the knowledge of the Son of God. I am a mature man. I have the measure of the stature of the full. These people are just weighing me down, and that guy doesn't have a clue what he's saying up at the front. Well, there are times the guy at the front will really concur with that, that I often struggle with that. Ryan would maybe second that. Well, maybe he would second that about me, but maybe he would second that about himself. Who is sufficient for such a task? The necessity, Calvin adds, for which he had pleaded is not confined to a single day, but continues to the end. Or, to speak more plainly, he reminds his readers that the use of the ministry is not temporal like that of a school for children, but constant so long as we remain in the world. Enthusiasts dream that the use of the ministry ceases so long as we have been led to Christ. Oh, I've become a Christian now. Now, now I've arrived. Is that what you felt like, Joe? You'd arrived, you met Jesus, I, I'm good now. I don't need anything else. I, I know Jesus, I'm, I'm good. No. Proud men who carry their desire of knowledge beyond what is proper look down with contempt on the elementary instruction of childhood. But Paul maintains that we must persevere in this course till all our deficiencies are supplied. And friends, I have a lot of deficiencies. In fact, I have so many deficiencies, it is next to impossible to me to get in the pulpit week in and week out. I once thought years ago, it should just become easier as you get older. It has gotten harder. It has gotten overwhelmingly difficult. The older I am, the more insufficient I realize I am for the task. And friend, whatever your task is that the Lord calls you to in this life, being a husband, being a father, being a mother, being a businessman where you're called to let your light shine in the world, your insufficiencies are a regular daily experience, aren't they? You need the word of Christ. Only it can truly perfect you after the image of Jesus. Calvin adds that we must make progress till death under the teaching of Christ alone and that we must not be ashamed to be scholars of the church to which Christ has committed our education. We are in school till the day we die. If this is so, and I fully believe it to be, allow me to press here one particular point of application regarding this. If the church of Christ, or in the church of Christ, not only is preaching to be prized, preaching must be prioritized. Preaching must be prioritized. It must be prioritized by the church's ministers. There are many things that a minister can do. There are other things that a minister should do, but there are only a few things that a minister must do. The ministry of the word coupled with prayer is chief among those things he must do. Without the preaching and teaching of the word, the minister of the word is not that. He's just a guy full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. 
If a minister of the word is not a minister of the word, then he's not what he's called to be, and he's not what you need. Additionally, it must be prioritized by the church itself. She, you, must demand preaching and teaching and hold your ministers accountable to it. You are to long for the word, 1 Peter 2. You are to pray for the word, Ephesians chapter 6. You are to attend to the word, Hebrews chapter 11. There's a wonderful picture of the prioritizing of the word in the Old Testament back in Nehemiah chapter 8. In Nehemiah chapter 8, the people have returned from exile. They are returning to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the wall. In some sense, perhaps, to recommit themselves to the ministry of the word. And it says in Nehemiah chapter 8, in verse 1, it says that all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which is in the front of the water gate, from early morning, maybe, maybe daybreak. He stands and he reads from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah and Mishael, Milkijah, Hashum, Hashbanana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed low, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelatiah, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place and they read from the book and from the law of God translating to give the sense so they understood the reading. Here is a people that are prioritizing the word of God. Such a word as preaching, prized and prioritized, should be considered with a final word, a word that we find back in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 14 to 16. We find in verses 14 to 16 that having laid out the means of accomplishing this movement of the church to the unity of the faith, having laid out this fullness of the picture of its measure in brief form in verse 13, we come to look at the marks of attaining to the unity of the faith. What will the church, what will the people of Christ look like that are growing toward and pressing toward this glorious maturity? As we grow, what will be evident among us? 
Notice what it says in verse 14. As a result, and this result is not simply following from verse 13, it's following from the whole of the text stretching back to verse 7. As a result of these gifts being given to the church, as a result of this preaching ministry of building up the body of Christ and perfecting her, as a result of this glorious image of what she's supposed to attain to, what will it look like when this is happening? As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed and carried about. Or I'm going back to the translation I had that I gave you last week. Let me just stick with Ephesians 4, 14. You may not have that translation I gave you last time. As a result, he says, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now our thoughts here have to be brief, but the marks of the church that has prized the preaching of the word and has given priority to it that she might grow will fundamentally be twofold. One negative and one positive. In these verses, we find the church growing up into her head in verse 15. And as such, as she grows up into her head, listen, she is no longer in a state of infancy. Rather, she is growing, number two, to a point of adulthood. She is leaving infancy, and she is growing toward that mature manhood. As characteristic of the apostle in this section, he makes use of a couple of uh, triadic formulas, that's what I'd call them. Kind of, kind of, He lists things out in threes. The church, we find in verse 14, is not to be any longer in a state of infancy. He says, we are no longer to be children. And I'm going to, If maybe you have the sheet from last week. If not, just listen. If you do have it, you can pull it out and read through this. Let me, let me kind of rephrase this just a little here. I think this gets at his intention. We are no longer to be children tossed and carried about. That's the problem. Children are easily tossed and carried about. And then he gives three instrumental phrases showing us how that tossing happens. Number one, we're not to be tossed and carried about by every wave and wind of doctrine. Did you see that new book that's out? Oh, it's really good. I had some friends of mine tell me about this book, Pastor. It's great. And then they tell you the name of the book, and you know, you, oh, you fall over dead, and then you resurrect quickly, and then you're like, no, bad book, naughty book. Leave that book alone, all right? Years ago, when we first started our church, um, we were a very young church, and uh, we we, we were not too exposed to a consistent teaching of Scripture. And for the most part, when I mean, we had some, but for the most part, we were just young and we were immature and, and we just didn't know. And I, it, it was like weekly, I had people come up and tell me, oh, pastor, what about this book? And I'm like, you know, inside you're like, you know, having this kind of, you know, convulsion or whatever. You're trying not to let it come out your face. Janice always says, that when I have those moments where inside me, I'm just like wanting to die, she says I get a look. It's 
like the pastor look. I'm not good at hiding the pastor look or whatever. I'd like to just think I'm, I'm undiscernible at the moment, and I'm looking really, you know, neutral. But Janice says, no, you get that look, and it's, it's pretty bad. It's like, it's like you've got to be serious. Heresy. All right. And I'm sure I get it. But so we started a bookstore at the church. And I thought, you know, I, I want to get books on the bookshelf that people don't have to come and ask me, Pastor, is this a good book? Now, I will say that 25 years later, sometimes I cringe when I think of some of the books I put on the good bookshelf. Yeah, well, we're all growing, right? We're all learning, okay? But we were trying. We were trying. But people in the church, God's precious children are often easily tossed and carried about by every wave and wind of doctrine. Think about the instability of an infant. You know, if there's a storm, you pick up your baby. You know, when was the last time a tornado warning came through on Channel 8 or whatever, and you mothers looked at your babies and said, fend for yourself. Get it together, all right? I'm going to the room with a helmet on, but you can lay there and go bleep, 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 all, all night long. No problem. I'm just going to leave you there. No, it's like, where are the children? You're grabbing them. You're like, oh, you're... And, you know, Janice doesn't worry where I am. She knows where I am. I'm staring out the window. Wow, that's really cool. Look at, uh, look at the cow blow by or whatever. And um, no, little babies, they need what? They need that protection. They need that care. We are led astray. We are tossed and carried about by the trickery of men. Men like their father, the devil, are full of tricks. And they're full of craftiness and deceitful scheming. The church in a state of infancy, we must no longer be like that. What must we be like? We must grow up in all aspects into him. And again, I'm reading from the translation I gave you last Lord's Day. We must grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, hear this, by being closely fitted and held together, by the contribution of every touching contact, and by the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We are to engage together in what we might call body life or, or life together as all those various pieces and parts of the body that Ryan preached uh, so well through 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, the, the eyes and the hands and the noses and the ears and all the different parts of the body. We've got to be engaging together in that one body of Christ. And notice the phrase, the... Um, It's there in verse 16, fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. I translated that by the contribution of every touching contact. It's talking about where the joints come together. Some of us are getting older and we feel those touching contacts even more and more when we try to get out of bed in the morning, all right? And, and it's not quite as cushy as it was a long time ago. Well, that's the way it is in the body. In the body, we're supposed to do what? We're supposed to touch we're supposed to engage. We're supposed to create that, 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 that reality that, that, I was going to say Paul, of course we all know Paul wrote Hebrews, that Paul says in Hebrews 10 where, where it says that we're to, to stimulate one another 
to love and good deeds. And friends, listen, if you're home on Sunday having your personal Bible study because you really don't think preaching is all that important, you can't be here creating friction in the body by which we grow, by which we encourage one another to grow. Well, just a footnote here, and we need to press on. I don't know when I started today, and I'm getting excited about that thing that Ryan said was happening next week, and I'm, I'm trying not to get too excited about the Nehemiah thing, you know, early in the morning to like midday, get nervous, me reading a passage like that. But let me just direct your attention to a phrase that happened here a couple of times. Everything that's to be done, everything that is to be done within the body of Christ is to be done within the context of love. I was talking to Ryan, I guess, last night, or maybe it was this morning we were talking, and and I was talking to the family last night that it was interesting how last week, we, last month, we ended on 1 Corinthians 13, talking about that, that life of the body, and it's all to be done, what? In, in love. And here we have in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says two times, two times, verses 15 to 16, he uses this concept of in love, but speaking the truth in love, jump down to the end of verse 16, for the building up of itself in love, he uses these ideas of love to kind of, kind of, form like brackets around the whole of the section. Everything that happens in here happens in the context of love. To quote from Calvin one more time here, he says this. He says, lastly, he shows that by love, the church is edified or perfected here. And this means that no increase is advantageous which does not bear a just proportion to the whole body. That man is mistaken who desires his own separate growth. I'm going to like work out over here. I'm going to do my thing over here. I got my own growth going on. The body can do what it wants. I'm going to grow over here. If a leg or an arm should grow, (laughs) the imagery here is great. If a leg or an arm should grow to a prodigious size or the mouth be more fully distended, Would the undue enlargement of those parts be otherwise than injurious to the whole frame? I mean, you know I go to the gym a lot, right? No, I don't. Don't laugh. You're going to get there too one day. Yeah, Yeah. I've told all all three of my boys that uh, one day you're going to be old, fat, and bald. I've seen four generations of Montgomery men. They're all old, fat, and bald. And it's coming. It's coming for you. And uh, he looks young and healthy right now. Don't be fooled. I've seen his 30-year-old brother. It's coming. It's coming. So I hope not. But, you know, genetics, what are you going to do? I don't go to the gym a lot, but I used to go to the gym. And if you just take the dumbbell and you just work out one arm over and over and you never work out the other arm, what happens? You got a really great, strong arm over here and a really wimpy arm over here. That, that, that's not the way it's supposed to be. We need some kind of symmetry in the body. And Calvin here is saying, in like manner, if we wish to be considered members of Christ, let no man be anything for himself. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. But let us all be whatever we are for the benefit of one another. This is accomplished by love. And where it does not reign, there is no edification, but an absolute scattering. This is the condition of a maturing church. 
not only prizing the word and prioritizing the word, but a church that realizes these things, preaching in it should be, hear this, it should be practiced. It should not just be prized and prioritized. It should be practiced. Consider just a few passages that drive this home where this concept is pressed upon the hearer. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, just listen, he says in Galatians 6, 6, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. And I start there because that shows the context of what Paul is talking about is somebody's been teaching and preaching the word of God. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not, brothers and sisters, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Or probably the text that came to my mind the first and is the most pressing in my own mind is James chapter 1. James chapter 1 and verse 19 James, the brother of our Lord Jesus, said these words, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone is to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And I used to read that verse, and I used to just think of that in terms of, that's a great little tidbit for living. Some of you ladies might be older, or maybe you do you remember helpful hints from Heloise? Right? Remember those in the, you know, how to get the stain out with toothpaste and stuff like that or whatever? Just a little tidbit for a living, just to kind of help you a little bit. You know, um, be quick to hear, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to be angry. You know, God gave you two ears and one mouth, you know, use them accordingly, that kind of a thing. And you kind of teach your kids things like that. Well, I'm not saying there's no axiomatic principle we could draw there, but the context is not about how we just kind of go about our day and respond to people and things like that. The context is about how you respond to the preaching of the Word of God. Because sometimes, frankly, doesn't it happen that the preacher just makes you mad? Man, you stepped on my toes today. I wasn't really happy with you today, Pastor. And then you wonder what's going to come next. That's kind of a scary thing. He says this, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your soul. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, oh, excuse me, I skipped the best verse, not the best verse, but the the point. Verse 22, but prove yourselves what? Doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man that looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless." Bridalist tongue there in verse 26 ought to draw our attention back to that text earlier where it told us to be quick to hear and slow to what? Slow to speak. 
One who hears the word of God and does not put what he hears into practice is one who deludes himself. The words of Matthew Henry here were helpful. He said that bare hearers are self-deceivers. The original term here signifies men arguing sophistically with themselves. Their reasoning is manifestly deceitful and false when they would make one part of their work discharge them from the obligation they lie under to another or persuade themselves that filling their heads with notions is sufficient though their hearts be empty of good affections and resolutions and their lives fruitless of good works. Self-deceit will be found the worst deceit at the last. Let me ask you quickly as we seek to end, what of you? We have spoken of a church that is to prize and prioritize and to practice the word of God. But eventually this does need to be carried down to the individual level, doesn't it? We need to ask you the question. You need to ask your own heart the question. Do you, friend, prize the word of God? Christ here in this passage that we've been working our way through for these last five weeks together, Christ has given graciously to the church word gifts by which you are to grow into maturity in Christ. Do you have a love for the word that is preached? I thought of the passage in 2 Thessalonians where Paul speaks about those that are outside of Christ, and he says in 2 Thessalonians 1.10 that they did not receive a love of the truth so as to be saved. You understand, do you not, that churches all around the world are filled with people who have no love for the truth. They're just full of people. They're full of people learning things. They're full of people who their friends go there. It's, it's kind of a nice thing for them to do on the weekend. It kind of, kind of kills a few hours. It's nice. It, it kind of soothes the conscience. But I ask you the question, do you prize the preaching of the word? Do you, friend, do you prioritize it? Do you prioritize the preaching of the word of Christ? One might think of that in terms of prioritizing the worship of Christ on the Lord's day. Or do you let other things perhaps crowd out the worship of God, central to which is the preaching of the word of Christ? Do other things just kind of come up? Well, somebody came in town today and bring them to church. Oh, but they don't go to church. Well, then you go to church and set the example for them. Show them that you prize Christ over all things. I got behind this week in the yard. It'll be there later. And if you mow it today, it'll probably need mowing three days later anyway. Just let it grow a little more. God providentially grew them. Where do you think he wants you to be? I'm probably getting a little personal here, and you might sit there and think, hey, back off. We're all here. Well, we're all here today. 
And you might think, well, well you're always there. I'm, you know why I'm here? I'm here because I love the preaching of the word, not mine. I just love preaching. Why? Because it points me to Christ, and it makes me love Christ. And I love the church, and I love to be with God's people, and I love to worship him. And, you know, I didn't start preaching until I was 27. But you know what I did for 27 years before that? I'm with the church. And sometimes I went because mom and dad probably drugged me as a reluctant teenager. But I'm so glad they did that. Brothers and sisters, we are to prize the preaching of the word, to prioritize the preaching of the word, and we are, we are to practice the preaching or the preached word. We are not just to listen. We are not just to hear. We are not just to know things about Christ. We, beloved, we want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings and the, the power of his resurrection. We want to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And how does this happen? This happens through week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, a whole life of attending to the primary means of grace by which you may grow. May God grace us in the formation of a congregation to be a congregation filled with people and a congregation as a whole that prizes, prioritizes, practices the word of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bless you. We thank you so for this gracious gift you've given to the church. Help us to make much of it. Help us to do this for your glory and for our good. We ask in Jesus' name.